Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore the topic of environmental ethics. First we will establish what we mean by environmental ethics, then we will explore some of the major ethical issues we are confronting relative to the environment. Joining me today is Professor Thomas White. Dr. White is a Conrad N. Hilton Chair of the Center of Ethics at Loyola Marymount University. He received his doctorate in philosophy from Columbia University. He has four important books that he has, has written. And um, those, the titles of those books are Right and Wrong, Discovering Philosophy, Business Ethics, and Men and Women at Work. And he's also authored numerous articles on topics ranging from 16th century Renaissance humanism to business ethics. He's also a scientific advisor in the Dolphin, the Wild Dolphin Project, which is a research organization studying a community of Atlantic spotted dolphins in the Bahamas. And he's been with them for more than 20 years. Tom, welcome to Coastal Conversations. Jerry, thank you for having me here. You're our first philosopher that we've had on, on this program. And uh, first of all, tell us what a philosopher does. For well, it, uh, a philosopher is really very much like a scientist. In fact, the first, the first philosophers were the earliest scientists. What we do, we're, we have just as much curiosity as scientists about the, the world around us, except instead of using uh, experiments and numbers, because most of us can't count past 20, uh, you know, fingers and toes. Uh, we, use our, we use our brain, so it's all sort of intellectual and conceptual. And what it, what it, when we talk about environmental ethics, what do we mean? Well, first of all, when we talk about ethics in general, as a part of philosophy that's really concerned about, uh, just in an ordinary way, what people talk about is right and wrong, how we evaluate our behavior. And this is a part of philosophy and the part of ethics that's, that's applied, as opposed to the, just the theoretical issues, the application of that to the practical world. So environmental ethics is then, for example, what's the impact of our actions on the world around us? What's the impact of our actions on air, land, water, the things on which we depend and the things on which other folk depend to live? But, so you mentioned right and wrong. There seems to me that there are probably as many definitions of right and wrong as there are people on, on the planet. Does this make philosophy different from science? Well, first of all, the disagreement shows that philosophy is almost exactly like science. Because if philosophers and scientists have one thing in common, it's that what we do for a living is try to prove others wrong. It's, I always have to laugh sometimes when I, when I read things about scientists having some kind of conspiracy about something because it's just so hard to get scientists to, to agree on any, anything because, because what, what it's all about is you, you discover truth and you test truth by attacking one another. I mean, science and philosophy really are very sort of an aggressive enterprise. So there is there's massive disagreement. In that way, uh, philosophy and science are very similar. But when it comes to ethics, 
there is, despite the fact that we see in ethics all kinds of disagreement, there rarely are a couple of things that virtually everybody agrees on, at least you know, in, in theory and in general. You know, do no harm, treat others appropriately. Now, it gets complicated when we apply all of that, but the, the, the general outlines of ethics and then environmental ethics really are you know, something that most of us can agree on. So it, it's interesting then, since science and philosophy both advance by attacking each other, and what survives... So no, that's not necessarily a good thing. I don't, <laughs> oh, no, I, I don't want to say that no, that's no, a good thing, no, but it is like... When, when you attack ideas, I think it is. Mm -hmm. It is good. It can be. <clears throat> and so what it means then, I think, is if an idea survives, whether it's, it, it's beginning to approach the, the truth. When climate change is an interesting right. example. When 97% of climate scientists agree that the climate is changing and that humans are a major driver, to me that says something. Exactly. The, in fact, the methodology is if you attack something enough over time, if you, with a, a scientific finding, you try to replicate it, you see what the deal is, you look for weaknesses in the methodology. If over time that stands, it must and so uh, climate change is a, is a terrific example because when you look at now the consensus, the scientific consensus which is there, it's truly remarkable. When you have an enterprise that is based on finding mistakes and finding things wrong, when you have that, now have such consensus, that's really, truly remarkable. And, and yet, uh, according to a recent survey, fewer than 50%, I think it was 42% of Americans, believe that the scientists agree that climate is changing and that uh, humans are a major driver? It's very disappointing the, uh, on, on a number of fronts. Part of this is that one of the features of current culture is we don't insist that everybody roll out facts for what they claim. And on climate change, many other environmental issues, there are facts that really are the basis of the whole claim. And we have a bad habit of thinking that, particularly if a fact is inconvenient, that we don't have to really dig through that. And it's something that we really have to uh, recommit ourselves to as a nation, to be serious about facts. So with, with um, these serious environmental issues that, that uh, we face, not just climate change, but habitat destruction, a, a lot of these, how do ethics enter into the, the decisions that we make? as a society? Well, if we start with the idea that ethics is simply about not harming one another or recognizing whether or not what we do have negative consequences on others, what the relationship between the actions and, and people downstream. Oh, classic example, well, I'll give you literally downstream. I lived on the East Coast for, for a number of years. One and point, so did I, 20, 20 more, more than 20. Okay. I was, I was more than that as well. So we're both veterans of the East Coast. I lived uh, by the Hudson River. And I can recall at one point that upstream, it turned out that some industry, and I will not name names, some industry was... But they make light bulbs. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> they were dumping toxic waste into the Hudson River. And, and there was this kind of hue and cry about this. And the response was, well, like, this is environment, environmentalists are complaining about all of this, this sort of tree hugging. And my attitude was, those of us who live downstream, now this was our drinking water, and these were heavy metals going into the drinking water that we, we were going to drink. This was on a health issue. So 
that, from that standpoint, that's sort of one of the best examples I have. And there are tons of examples now. The, the, the toxic spills in North Carolina, in, into rivers. An environmental issue, as far as ethics, has to do with the, the fact that in those cases, people's health is being put at risk because of the fact that somebody's dumping things into, a, into not just a decorative resource, but a vital resource. But let's pursue that a little bit, mm -hmm. because it seems to me ethics, it isn't just doing what's good for your family or your community. You, you also then, you have to look downstream in space, and you also have to look downstream in time. Exactly. So I want you to say a word about that, because I, there are times in California, for example, we are very, we have very strict environmental standards, mm -hmm. which I applaud. But if it simply means that we push that activity mm. to some other state or some other nation, is that ethical? When you get serious about doing ethics and looking at the ethical dimensions of a problem, one of the most difficult things is to be detailed and thorough and to really work a problem out to its logical extreme. So, for example, if we, one of, part of what you're talking about is that in California, we're going to stop thinking about that when it crosses, the, whenever the impact crosses the border. Well, for the person who lives in Nevada, that's not okay. Now, we may say, well, you know, not our problem. But, but it is. From an ethical standpoint, everybody counts. Boundaries are then artificial. I saw a, a, a program recently where one of the astronauts who had gone to the moon was reflecting on seeing the Earth for the first time from space, and that he said, there are no boundaries. We're, you know, all the lines we live with aren't there. We're, we all live in the same place. So I think that what you're talking about, as from, as from an ethical perspective, is very important because we, it is important to you know, think globally and act, act locally. But you can't do that in a way in which you push, you say, not in my backyard, and simply put it into somebody else's backyard. The other part of this, though, that's critical is that when you understand the way the planet operates, it's all my backyard. It's an artificial distinction to say, not my backyard, my backyard. And, and I think we haven't gotten to that point. We have yet. not gotten to that point. And I think that's one of the, the most challenging issues we must confront. And it, it isn't just the environment. It's the number of people who have been left behind because of the success that the developing world has had. Something more than a, a billion people lack any access to clean drinking water. Almost two billion lack access to sanitary facilities. I gave a talk recently here at the aquarium to some of our donors, and I made the, the, the statement, according to the UN, a child under five dies every eight seconds from waterborne illness. I didn't get much of any reaction at all. And I said to the group, if I told you that we were losing a baby sea lion or a seal every eight seconds, you'd be horrified. You would demand that we do something. What, what's wrong with us that we don't include humans as part of nature? We have become callous to suffering. I think that we, uh, and, and as an ethicist, this is, uh, I mean, frankly, reading the newspaper gets painful for me. I, I frequently go through stretches, and I'm in one now, where I don't listen to the news or read papers any more than I have to, because while we say that as a species we are the brightest on the planet, that we are the most creative, 
that we honor our species, we, we deal one another terribly. We're, we're, we're cruel, we're wasteful, and I think that we, we need to reflect on the amount of compassion that we need to have towards one another, especially when you look at the planet and how easy it would be. For example, the drinking water, great example. D diseases in Africa, some of those that are really can be solved. Why don't we do that? Why don't we? That's a great question. <laughs> I, 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 think, I, don't, I don't have a clue except that. There are too many incentives that, I mean, I, I teach in, as you mentioned, I teach in the business school. I teach in, you know, I, I have a chair in business ethics. Certainly as far as the economy is structured, there are not enough incentives and the way the, the society revolves around the economy. There are not enough incentives for altruistic, compassionate work as part of the mission of who we are as a species. My attitude is part of why we are here is to make the world a better place for others. It is not what can I get, what is, what's in it for me, you know, the guy who dies with the most toys wins. Right. That is not That's who we should think of ourselves as a species. No. I encourage our, our viewers, if you have questions, email them to live at fbaop.org, and if near the end of the program, we will try to answer your questions. So let's come back to the, 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 all the people who don't have access to safe drinking mm -hmm. water or sanitary facilities, and more than a billion families have never had electricity of any kind. Mm -hmm. We say we can't afford it, but according to the United Nations, if you take the giving clean drinking water to everybody on the planet, we spend more in the United States on bottled drinking water mm -hmm. than it would take to provide clean, safe drinking water to everyone on the planet. We spend more on pet food in the United States and in Europe than it would take to provide everyone on the planet with sanitary facilities. So I don't buy that we can't afford it. It's a question of our priorities. That's right. It, not only is it a matter of we have the resources, but we call ourselves homo sapiens for a reason. You know, we, we say, you know, thinking that, you know, the, we're the thinking hominid. We have these big brains, and what's cool about these big brains is that it lets us invent and create. We're certainly, not only do we have the resources, we're smart enough to solve these problems. Why we don't, part of the problem is, is what I just alluded to, is that when you, you mentioned bottled water, you mentioned, uh, well, let's just stick with bottled water for a bit. One of the way, the way you get traction to sell that is you insinuate that somehow public water isn't safe enough. And uh, that the, the water that you're selling, which may not be any better than the tap water, is somehow safer. So if you can evoke, first of all, if you can evoke fear or if you can evoke style, you're able to sell that and, and make a profit. The issue then becomes not, is this for the common good? Is there a better way to use these resources? It's the, can I make a profit off of this? Now, teaching in a business school, I'm not going to say profit is a bad thing, but it is frequently misused. It is, it is not necessarily a great marker for what is going to promote the interest of everybody who's affected. And the water example is a, is a terrific one. What is more critical to life than water? Why should someone in another country not be able to have water? And there's nothing more critical to life than water there, oh. because there's no replacement. Right. There's a replacement for oil or coal. Mm -hmm. There's no replacement for water. And we can go 
as, as a species, we can go longer without food than we can without water. Yes. Water is absolutely the most important thing. And if you're, if you're in an environment where the water is compromised, you really have no choice but to drink water which could damage your health. So again, from an ethical standpoint, and you talk about environmental issues, when you look at industries that rely on water, when you look at industries that uh, can potentially affect water, for example, again, you know, pollution of streams and all, it's an incredibly important ethical issue because unless you, I'm thinking of some of the, uh, the, the, the spills in North Carolina recently, um, where industries parked toxic substances too close to streams, too close to rivers. There was a spill, it got in there. Why did they park them there? Because it was less expensive to do that. Uh, they may have said, well, our duty is to our shareholders to keep costs down. Well, that's only part of the story. The greater duty is you do not endanger the life and welfare of someone else. If you do that, you're passing the costs on to someone else, and that's simply not fair. And it's from an ethical standpoint, it's certainly wrong. So you're in a business school. I'm in a business a, school. A, a former friend of mine, he's now dead, but Jack Beerworth, who was the chairman of the Grumman Corporation mm. that was headquartered and started mm -hmm. on Long Island by mm -hmm. Leroy Grumman, literally in a garage. Mm -hmm. And when I was the provost at Stony Brook, we asked uh, Jack Beerworth to become a university professor, and he would talk about ethics in business. And he, he made the comment every lecture he gave knowing what was ethical and not ethical to do was easy knowing but executing what was the right thing to do was that was the hard part you you have uh, you teach in a business school you have business clients would you agree with jack's statement knowing what's the right thing to do is pretty easy executing it is quite a different thing i'd agree with most of it the second part it really is tough to do the right thing but too many people are not perceptive enough about ethical issues, and they think that they get a pretty quick read on what the right thing to do is, what the wrong thing to do is. Where they typically miss, and I see this in business all the time, is that they look at it just in the short term. They look at it as far as a limited number of people who are going to be affected. So to go back to my Hudson River example or the North Carolina rivers. People who looked at, the, you know, there were situations where they said, well, our duty to the company is to follow the laws, not to do any obvious harm, and to promote the interest of, of the shareholders. Well, they may have thought that parking that waste that close to the river, as long as it was legal, uh, was okay, that they had this other duty that had to be recognized. But um, ethics is all about risk assessment. And it, just because something is legal does not mean that the risk is an acceptable one. And in those situations, we've seen that the law was not sufficient. And we also know, if you look at the North Carolina case, you'll see that there really was a cozy relationship between the industries and the, and the state regulations. So I'd say it's not always the case that you that seeing the what's the right and wrong thing is the easy thing to do. You have to ask. You have to challenge yourself. You have to question yourself <clears throat> whether you're really taking a good read on it. And that takes patience. That takes detail. 
and it takes not having to fear for your job if you come up with, a, you know, with the answer that says the company has to operate differently. So you, you said ethics is about risk taking, risk analysis. Risk assessment, risk assessment. Yeah, absolutely. But risk assessment, isn't that the domain of scientists and engineers since most philosophers probably uh, aren't terribly sophisticated mathematically? And what I experience in environmental issues, mm -hmm. well-meaning but ill-informed mm -hmm. environmentalists mm -hmm. with the best of intentions, mm -hmm. they miscalculate, mm -hmm. or misrepresent the risks which are presented by the scientific community. Mm -hmm. And if I don't understand the risks, am I being unethical to advocate environmental strategies that clearly are opposed to the best scientific thinking? Seems to me if you get into this area, applied ethics, environmental issues, job one is to know the technical side of things. You cannot, and this has to do even with how we operate as citizens, if you're going to advocate a position, it's really your duty to know what you're talking about. And I mean really know what you're talking about, to know the limits of what you know and what you do not know. Now, the, it's possible that uh, you know, philosophers, uh, you know, and I can say this from my work in marine science, it's possible to do the work and get enough facility to be able to have a general understanding, a close enough understanding to be able to talk risk analysis with specialists. The flip side of that is that too many uh, scientists, engineers uh, who are trained in a descriptive methodology, sort of the normal methodology of science, have a tough time making that transition to talking about shoulds and not and risk assessment the way that we do it for ethicists. But this is now a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary venture, and both sides have to learn more because exactly what you're talking about is one of the big problems. Advocating for a position that you don't really understand everything that is on the table and needs to be taken into account because if you don't, what you're, what you're going to be doing is pushing a case that can potentially harm someone or not solve the problem or make the problem worse. And, and these kinds of problems are now called wicked problems because they cross disciplinary boundaries. Uh, if, if we're going to address them effectively, you have to change the mindsets of lots and lots of people. And the only way that you can formulate the problem properly, and it's a social process, mm -hmm. is to bring diverse perspectives to the table and keep them long, there long enough so they develop a trust for each mm -hmm. other, they share information, and you decide on what the elements of that problem really are. Lewis, Lewis Thomas, uh, who is the head of Sloan Kettering and a wonderful essayist, um, I remember he, he used to come and lecture and he would say, I don't have the right to an opinion on black holes or high energy physics because I simply don't understand the mathematics. Mm -hmm. He was a distinguished mm -hmm. MD. I think too often we're not that humble and we have strong opinions that aren't, are not based on the, the right facts. But I think I agree with you, it's orchestrating those discussions mm -hmm. and, and we don't do enough of that. Are you involved in those? In the world of marine mammal science, I am. And uh, I think that, first of all, generally what you're talking about, I think, speaks to the fact that my two favorite value, uh, virtues are humility and compassion. I think that uh, whether it's among philosophers or scientists or economists or rock stars, we don't see enough of that because particularly with the complexity of the problems that we're facing, there is 
too, we're all too quick to be too confident about what we, what we know. And I, and I think that when you're talking about the kinds of problems you're describing, which means we need expertise of, of various sorts around the table, we need to know where that expertise is solid, we know where that expertise ends, and then to, to hand it off. And we ha then need to make sure that the, the goal that we're looking for is the common good. We're looking for what is going to let us sustain a certain way of life on the planet. I mean, sustainability is very important in, in the whole world of, of environmentalism. And sustainability is, is something that, that is, how do we make sure that it is possible for the next generation, the generation after that, the generation of after that, to have a respectable life. We have too much of a situation where it looks like, you know, we're going to end up with a great life and say to everyone else down the road, sorry about that, we didn't care enough to think about this. Uh, we, see, we see this now with uh, the fact that just when you talk about climate change, 1990 is when you, you get the first consensus among the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Global Climate Change. And here it is, 2014, and people still debate that. Well, people now, particularly some of the folk who got rolled over by Hurricane Sandy, really are entitled to say, why didn't you people think about this? Because we're now the ones who are picking up the pieces. And that will happen increasingly. Oh, absolutely. I, I think. All the yeah, projections yeah. are, you know, yeah. you know, this is like turning an aircraft carrier around. It does not go on a, on a dime. No, that's right. So humility and compassion. Mm -hmm. I would agree with you. Those are the, the two most admirable qualities, and maybe they're in short supply. Uh, you mentioned sustainability. From your perspective, what do we mean by environmental sustainability? I like to go with something really simple, which is that, what I, what I was just suggesting, which, um, we need to find a way to live, and it, this is not a matter of, of sacrifice and giving up and sackcloth and ashes. We need to find a way where we say, what is an appropriate, acceptable, comfortable life that we can have, that we can share with others, uh, because we're no more special than anyone else on the planet, or our generation is not any more special than anyone else. How can we use the resources that we have, uh, use the resources that we will have, manage things so that whether it's seafood, whether it's land use, whether it's clean water, whether it's clean air, so that we don't go from crisis to crisis, to crisis but we have a way of living that lets us sustain and support a healthy way of life for humans and the other folk who live who live on the planet, and that it continues without our saying, oh no, we're at the brink of another problem, what do we do? And I think that it, it has to be one that continues over time, and, and I agree with you, and that is pretty close to the original definition that was given for sustainability quite some time ago, and uh, it, it, it's not a complicated concept. Executing it is, becomes increasingly challenging, 1.3 billion people on the planet on our way to 10 or 11 billion by the end of this century. We, we simply are not on a trajectory that is sustainable. And we're going to have to use different disruptive strategies to move us onto a strategy that is more sustainable. The two practices of human beings that cause the greatest damage on Earth are the ways we grow and harvest our food mm. and the kinds and amounts of energy that we use. And in both cases, we need to see 
the equivalent of revolutions, I think, in the next decade or so. We certainly have to be smart. We keep telling ourselves we're the smartest being on the planet. We have these big brains, and but we have to make sure that we, again, don't just measure, when, when you talk about energy or, or food, that we aren't just measuring it about what, how much money can we make this profit, I mean, the, this quarter. We have to say, how can we have a robust economy, but also one that really promotes the welfare of everyone it touches? And we can certainly do that. Having a big brain doesn't mean very much if you don't use it. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and it's not rocket science. It really isn't rocket <laughs> science. Not, rocket no. science is tougher than... Well, it, no, this is easy. This is harder than rocket That's science. That's right. This is harder than rocket science. Rocket science, when we put a man on the moon or a rover on Mars, those are complex problems, but they had well-defined goals right. and objectives. They had metrics of measuring success. We don't have that in the ill-defined kinds of problems that we're trying to solve. So we need to get some of those people who used to go into space science, rocket science, to get interested in environmental science and raise our level of sophistication and be better at communicating with diverse audiences and finding these common goals. Tom, before we, we run out of time, you've been a leader in the efforts to uh, advocate for the rights of dolphins uh, and, and whales. And um, there's a lot of attention right now on zoos and on aquariums that have dolphins and whales in captivity. When you look forward a decade or so, how do you see this changing and where are the opportunities where we could and should change? Well, one of the most interesting things about, about that whole issue is that, you know, when you have scientific progress, you invariably find cases where you get new ethical challenges surfacing precisely because of what you've learned. And over the last 30, 40, 50 years, much of the research being done in captivity on whales and dolphins has shown us now that the kind of life they live in a captive situation versus the kind of life that from an evolutionary standpoint, they were designed to live in the wild kind of life they were living in in a captive situation is, is intensely unsatisfying. And the big challenge then is, so the, moment, that's, the momentum is definitely going to, it has been recognizing the issue of, of growth, development, flourishing of beings. And, you, know, you don't have that in a captive situation. Where we're heading, though, I think is clearly that the, the, what's really needed is an industry-wide commitment to some kind of sanctuary to develop a transition phase so that captivity can be phased out, uh, captive facilities can transition themselves to a more economically sustainable model, and that, uh, we, that we respect what science has taught us, which has to do with, when you're talking about a being that's evolved over 50, 60 million years, and has, as, as all beings have, have adapted to an environment in, order to, in a way that lets them grow, develop, and live a satisfying life that um, what we will see is, is, I'm convinced, is that there will be more of a push that recognizing that that's the kind of life that whales and dolphins are entitled to. And that's really all that rights are. It has to do with what are the conditions you need to have a satisfying life. And you've been a very strong advocate for that. Um, do you, what do you see for the future of fish in places like this aquarium? Uh, the, the, the value I see of fish and the kinds of animals that most aquariums exhibit is that for many people, 
it's their only opportunity to look and see what lives in the ocean. And, and um, most of us aren't going to go to Fiji and dive on a coral reef, but we can go to an aquarium and look at a beautiful coral reef, and maybe it makes us better environmental stewards. And not simply the, the live displays, but, <coughs> but excuse me, but this aquarium, uh, Monterey Bay, you have remarkable exhibits that are interesting, educational, visually engaging, that convey the message. And that, so it's a variety of things that, uh, give, uh, that, that give any visitor to an educational institution like this a kind of glimpse of the, of, of the future, a glimpse of another part of reality that, that they don't see, an understanding. And the ocean is incredibly important because the, the planet is more water than land. And so something like uh, an institution like this is key in opening the door to that world for people who can never get there. And I think when you said it, it allows glimpses into the future, that's one of the things we emphasize, to have people be able to experience alternative futures and to identify the decisions that put us on these different trajectories to different futures so that we hope that we will be able to make wiser, more ethical, more scientifically valid decisions. And the, the future will be the result of our decisions. That's right. We should, we, it, you know, it, we, it will either be the result of good decisions that we make, right. bad decisions, or the fact that we choose not to make a decision and leave it to someone else. No, that's but the future is, is not out there. It is to be written by what we choose to do. That's right. Will and Ariel Durant, the historians, had a wonderful statement in their little book, The Lessons of History. The future never just happened. <laughs> it was created. It was created. And we will create it for good or ill. Well, I want to thank uh, Tom White for joining me on this edition of Coastal Conversations. I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making Coastal Conversations possible. We're going to be taking the month of August off, but we will be back with you in September for the next edition of Coastal Conversations. Watch our homepage for the date and topic. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations, and we thank you for watching.